Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, more than a few eyebrows were raised, including mine actually, when the news broke that Optus CMO Mel Hopkins was jumping from a big telco to a big media outfit in Seven West Media. From the outside, at least, it looked like a sideways move. Last year, Mel joined Mark Ritson in a series for YouTube, hailing YouTube as a highly effective channel that could do some things broadcasters couldn't. But talk to the high-energy Mel Hopkins, and it's a completely different story today. She hasn't landed at Seven to, in her words, put lipstick on a pig. Seven CEO James Warburton wanted a total transformation job, and Mel, although hesitant early on about a move to Seven, got religion quickly. She's staying tight on what that transformation looks like for now, but there are clues. She wants to link Seven's marketing activity and investment back to earnings and the P&L. She wants to prove commercial outcomes from marketing, and Mel thinks marketing can and should turn the fortunes of a show with a few caveats. As a marketer, she's also steadfastly aligned to James Warburton's mission to kill overnight TV ratings. Stupid is what Mel says of those. And at a broader level, Mel thinks the marketing funnel is dead. Now that conversation will get super interesting. So let's get to this. Welcome, Mel, Telco to TV Hopkins. Great to have you on. I've been trying to get you for about 3,000 years, by the way. Finally, you've said yes. But let's start with the obvious one, Mel. Um, What were you thinking and why the leap from Optus to Seven? You had a big gig there and it was a big blue chip doing pretty interesting stuff. What was it about a media company that got you intrigued enough to join? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question and I wasn't actively looking by any means to leave Optus. I had a great role there. Love Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin and Matt Williams, who I worked very closely with and, of course, Gladys Berejiklian and felt very valued by the um, organisation. I didn't also make a conscious decision to jump into media. Uh, What really sort of caught me, I think, was after a few conversations with James, the huge opportunity for transformation in this space, huge opportunity for me, I think, in a different type of industry and lateral growth and being part of a really tight executive team. And to be quite frank too, I think in a business that, well, everyone knows needs to change uh, and that, that very much excited me to be part of that leadership team that was going to create it. Mel, just out, it's a question I try to ask a, a lot of marketers prior to, obviously, you joining Seven. Um, when you ask a, a marketer how much time in their broader remit of marketing do they spend in and around and on media, it typically sits between 5 10 12%. Would that have been you in your role at Optus too? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll be honest, probably in the full remit of what I had, five to seven percent. But I guess it's what you determine as media because one of the other really large parts of my team where I did spend a huge amount of time was very much the the MarTech and ad tech and really determining the return on investment on media, what channels we were investing in that were going to really drive that. So um, I think media is quite broad. Ensuring that we got growth and we were able to attract audiences in in one sense is, is media and Maybe actually I'll re-answer that. 
let's say it's 20% because a huge focus of my job was our owned channels at Optus, the earned channels that we got, and then our paid channels. And that, that is probably the broadness of media and how you reach out and connect with customers every single day. You were also just on that because you you know there's not a lot of marketers that have this, but you had the B two C and the B two B remit as well. I think maybe for a year, very different different game there, right? In terms of uh, how you go to market to business versus consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even when you start looking at something on B two B advertising, the way you go to market for small businesses versus what you're doing for incredibly large enterprises. For example, one of the customers of of Optus is the Australian Taxation Office is absolutely, you know, very, very different. And at that top end, it's not so much what I would call traditional media or media spend, but it very much is around core messaging, thought leadership, and really developing, I think, intriguing ways to get into a business to demonstrate how you add value. So I sort of, in a B2B world, I love the challenge of having smaller budgets or actually those large budgets really not being effective because it actually forces you to be way more creative and understand what the true business problem is. Hopefully we might touch a little bit more down the conversation when we get to the funnel and the funnel is dead because I can't wait to get to that one. <laughs> B2B obviously has been very demand generation focused. There's a lot of talk uh, amongst B2B marketers about brand building as well now in, in a B2B context. And so I'll, we'll see how we go with that one. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I can I've see got, you're um, looking at me quite strangely there, Mel Hopkins. But listen, transformation, the thing that got you, let's get back to um, what got you intrigued with Seven was the transformation uh, task. Now, everyone talks about it, every company talks about it, but there's often a say-do gap in corporates, right? The How much you can really transform and what needs to transform. So that's kind of for your role, that question is for you too, is How much really can you transform at seven, Mel, and what are you going to transform? I think if we go back to the word transformation, and and let's be honest, it's also very overused at times. Let's look at the category. In the last 10 years in the content category, the amount of content players has absolutely exploded faster than anyone could imagine. And if I really look at even the competitive set for um, seven at the moment, beyond what you'd say is obvious in 9 and 10 and ABC and SBS. You've got all of your paid subscription players. You've got Instagram. You've got Snap. You've got Meta. You know, you've got Twitter. YouTube. YouTube. YouTube, for God's sake. Absolutely, YouTube. Um, You've got TikTok. People are consuming content in more ways than they ever thought were possible and, indeed, I think the industry thought possible. And that creates a really big challenge on on two fronts. One for the organisations, and indeed, if I call some of the, what you'd call traditional broadcasters incumbents, how are they going to shift and move in in this space and this big secular change, both economically and also in what's been delivered to customers, but also as an advertiser? Because it is so hard now as a CMO to reach audiences in what I would call a highly fragmented market. And the danger often is you spread yourself so thin that you're not really reinforcing the correct message at all and it gets really difficult. 
Mm. And so I mean, that goes to the point, though, around what do you do then? What do you do at seven? What are you doing with your audiences and, and shows? Let's get to the nub of this, which is can marketing really make or break a series or a show? Can you and your team, can the marketing team change the fortunes of a show, Mel? To a degree, absolutely. And, you know, it's sort of why James and I agreed the importance of having the word audience in my title. So it's Chief Marketing and Audience Officer. Right. You know, my team's job is to drive quality audiences to programs. Now, they need to be quality because we want to get the right type of audiences there. But then it really comes down to the content on the stickiness And that to me is no different to any category where you're driving demand or foot traffic or clicks or or visits. If the product ends up not being up to scratch, then you've got to look at is the wrong type of traffic coming in or do we have to look at reviewing and refreshing the product? But without doubt, my team's, one of their core sort of um, KPIs is driving quality audiences to our programs and then actually really driving stickiness and loyalty and repeat so repeat viewing. Repeat viewing, right. And yep. so are you how different is that going to look for you? And we'll get back to the transformation conversation in a sec, but how different is that going to look for how seven goes to market to do that in six months or whenever you're ready to start rolling things out? What can you do it really differently and better than what, what's been done hitherto? Well, I think, Paul, you know me. I don't think I'd be here if I didn't feel I could do it differently and uh, hopefully better. So I'm very passionate about doing that. But I think it just goes back to the fundamentals of marketing and marketing science. And if I use an analogy going back to Optus at my time there, when I first came into Optus, the business was obsessed with volume. They were driving low deals and low prices in market 80% of the spend was on sort of tactical advertising spend. Now, that drove great short-term gains, but it actually didn't drive loyalty and it didn't drive profitability. So the big job that I'm super proud of with the team at Optus is how we swung the pendulum and actually drove profitable growth by building a brand and having people wanting to choose us because if you're just going for sort of the bottom of the funnel, and we'll go, we'll talk about the funnel, but people in market ready to buy, they're not necessarily going to be loyal and they'll just move when something better comes around. And this for me is the great um, dynamic between the destination and platforms people come to and the content that they watch. I personally don't think it's a sustainable business model to just focus on content only and not building equity in the brand and the platform that people go to. And I don't believe many people globally have gone and built that equity into the platforms that people go to. Well, it's a really, really core and sort of resurfacing conversation in media and particularly with you know platforms like uh, broadcasters where can you build and should you build a brand and a habit to a platform, sorry, or a, or a company, or is it about the content? Where do you sit on that? Well, I'm not going to give away all my secrets now. I will say that- Just half of them, please. Yeah, no, no, no. But definitely kicking the tyre quite hard on both. And look, coming in fresh, I would have probably been 
a little more headstrong that we need to, you know, develop a brand and that the brand needs to stand by itself and it needs to become its own destination. The complexities actually of the industry I hadn't fully appreciated until I came in. And I think, you know, you need to look at both. One can't survive without the other. There is really good, interesting insight from some of the paid streaming platforms. You know, I think Netflix actually, as much as they haven't gone and done their own brand campaign per se, has really demonstrated the power of marketing right through UX and CX and personalization. And people choose Netflix and say they go to Netflix. I think that there are other paid subscription platforms that people will go to to watch a program, but they dip in and dip out and they don't actually have loyalty to that. And actually, you just have to look at people churning off subs at the moment. It reminds me a little bit back when credit cards, you know, you used to be able to swap around credit cards to get all their airline points. The danger with that is people then didn't have loyalty for the credit cards. They just wanted the airline points and they moved around. Mm. So and it's a really good point around Netflix, right, as a, as a destination first and then we'll find some content once you go to the destination, right? That's the sort of the argument you're talking around um, what's top of mind and where I'm going to go and consume my content. Now, broadcasters used to have that. Can they get it back? Yeah, I absolutely believe they can get it back. And I don't, you know, broadcasters have struggled because there now is more choice of content. I think actually what's happened with the likes of a, a Netflix, and I'll use, you know, Netflix is super interesting because they actually didn't launch their brand. They launched on a program, which was House of Cards back in the time. So they actually launched on content. And then the crown, and then the brand sort of was built thereafter. I love the fact that we have this competition because it's forced everyone to think really hard around the content and is that content right? But then I think the other question is, has broadcasts lost out overall? So if I, if I take something like news, 1.5 million Australians are engaged in watching Seven News for one hour every single day. Now, I think that's a pretty reasonable set of eyeballs and engaged eyeballs to advertise to. Uh, the same with sport and live sport. And then absolutely, when you start looking at programming and some entertainment programming, that also absolutely brings in huge audiences. I mean, you look national numbers even at something like Pharma, and I've, I've got it on very good authority, those numbers are substantially more actually than some of the paid subscription, what you'd consider top programs by a long way. I think the challenge for what is considered traditional broadcast sort of TV channels is ensuring that we're relevant and we're demonstrating that we're moving with the times. These paid subscription um, businesses, there's not enough room for them all to sit there, and particularly those without ad-funded models. And, you know, Netflix, as you know, has sort of struggled a little bit with their ad-funded model. You can't keep investing, you know, billions in developing content without getting the return. You talk about that as, um, you know, some of the audiences that Seven's got and doing. At Optus, what was your perception uh, as a marketer around broadcasters in general uh, versus what you kind of, I guess now you've been inside for, what, eight weeks? You're a veteran now, I think two months nearly. Um, but <laughs> what you saw from the outside, what you see from the inside, what was different? And you did do, and I mentioned it at the top, you did a lot of hymn singing with, with Mr. Ritson on YouTube last year. Correct, yep. But you take 
outside and now in? What's different? And then that, I guess, will shape how you go to market too, because there's perceptions out there that may not be the reality. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I think to start with, I've always been passionate around what you'd call traditional television. And I'm very passionate about long form content building brands. I think it has a a really, really sort of um, critical role in doing that. I think it's also really important when you talk media, you've got to think of the creative you're serving up in what channel as well. So it's not just about, you know, where the media is. I had an incredibly tight relationship with Seven when I was at Optus. We had a strong partnership with them. We built some amazing integrations and actually did some of our most successful work with Seven. So I'm certainly not anti-TV. I also believe that YouTube is incredibly important as a channel. And as we start building out our brand and programming, I will be using YouTube to reach audiences to remind them to come to Seven. I don't think it's one or the other. And I think that there is a real risk, actually, that you all of a sudden can start knocking media channels without thinking about the consumption moment. You know, I I know there was a discussion around newspapers or magazines. Magazines is a great example. Dwindling um, subscriptions on traditional print magazines. However, If you have the right message in those publications, the impact, because the reader is so immersed, is actually incredibly strong. Mm. Well, that's the irony. I mean, I I am very old, um, if you haven't worked that out. And the irony I always think about with magazines is that, yes, the numbers were coming down, but people pay for that product. They buy the magazines. It would sort of suggest that they might be really, really interested in in the stuff that's inside it. That was always a, a disconnect for me versus, you know, a free media channel. But that goes to engagement. What I really want to get back to for a quick sec is this transformation bit. So what did James say about what he wanted to to do with the business and what he wanted you to do with the business. What's this transformation thing about? Yeah, so again, I'm going to be cautious what I sort of disclose here. Look, James likes to win and is passionate around winning. That is part of his DNA. And James wants to be in a position where he pushes seven, uh, seven plus, which we should come back to because that's been pretty eye-opening for me. And, you know, obviously we've got our print business out in the West as well to push us to the next stage of where actually a transformational business should sit. He doesn't want us sitting as a old linear television station that is losing share. And he is ambitious and entrepreneurial and wants to push that forward. He's also quite sensible So he's not going to throw the core away as we're doing that and we're pushing the transformation. But the honest fact is we are an industry that is going through change and secular change. Plenty of industries do that. Manufacturing, it happens to. Retail, that happens to. Banking, that happens to. The story of what's happening in this industry is basically textbook economics, you know, you have three large incumbents, new entrants end up coming in, they shake up the market, some survive, some leave. The best case scenario is actually for the end customer, they end up getting a better offering at the end. And I love the fact that I'm in an industry going through that shake up at the moment. And, you know, with James and the leadership team, we're passionate about winning and pushing the way through it and demonstrating actually not just in Australia but globally how you can transform this business 
as the whole industry goes through a shift. Okay, so I know that you that was a really good answer of giving nothing away, Mel, but there is some great stuff in there and hints, I guess. So if we were, without giving away the secret sauce, what would be the an, an obvious point of transformation uh, that you see in Seven now or in the broadcast business broadly if you wanted to sort of take it away from competitive um, sensitivities? But what's the obvious thing for transformation that, that those sorts of businesses um, need to address? We need to stop talking broadcast. Yes, I just one. did that. Sorry. Right? So I, I think that's it. We need to stop talking broadcast. It is about screens and it is about delivering content to Australians and demonstrating actually how you can capture their attention and engage them. And I think the the challenge we've got as an industry and indeed both the media and even the marketing fraternity is the world has moved on and we keep talking about TV in the way we used to watch it when we grew up. And actually it's it's changed. I came in, I was aware of 7 Plus when I came in to um, the organisation. I knew that we bought a bit of VBOD. VBOD, I had no idea at how sophisticated that product was. It's quite embarrassing. The 15,000 hours of content, the fresh content that 7 Plus has that's not even available on broadcast, some of the amazing programming from NBCU, for example. Australia, you know, if, if I'm not going to know about that as a marketer, do Australians know the power of 7 Plus? And I think there's a huge opportunity in going and sharing that out. So I want to stop the conversation about linear and digital. It is about providing content and that platform of content and demonstrating to Australians that there is a platform where you don't have to pay for that content. And that does not mean you get substandard quality. In fact, in some cases, it's superior. And then secondly, how we demonstrate to advertisers that in a fragmented media world, we are an important ingredient and that we also demonstrate very transparently our measurement. And I think, you know, it's one thing with Google and Meta and and they won't argue with me, but they provide the measurement of their success. We all know that. There is a third party that does that in the world of screens uh, when it comes to free to air, be that television or streaming. So look, you, you make a really good point here and it's um, you know in and around your understanding awareness of 7 plus, for example. Now, was that a marketing deficiency or was that indicative of the fact that as a marketer, you were less curious and interested about that versus some of the fancier tech platforms that were coming out that were sort of got more interesting stuff. So, I mean, it's probably a bit of both, but how would you wait? Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think it is a couple of things. You know, I, I think um, 7 Plus has grown very, very, very quickly, and I would say with little marketing support. So I think there's a job to really drive that awareness. I don't think Australians probably fully understand BVOD, so how do we unleash that a little more? I'll just go back to the, to the fact that it is super hard to reach audiences and trying to keep up to speed as a marketer around the different platforms is challenging. And I think, you know, that is a job that I know, you know, um, Kurt Burnett, our Chief Revenue Officer, does well in pushing out, but I'm going to work hard with him to, to push as well. But, you know, every week there is something new being spruiked at you and you're sort of trying to determine where you should go and what's right and where are you going to get the competitive advantage. Finally, for customers, 
I mean, I'm going to give you the test, Paul. Name all of the ways that you can consume long-form content in Australia at the moment. I get your point, and I don't want to bore the listener, but there's lots. Oh, no, hang on, long-form, you're saying. Yes, there's yeah, but lots. I, so long-form yeah. content is, yeah, yeah. Um, BVOD, SVOD, free it's to dizzying. But you've also got your subscriptions, your subscription platforms. That's yeah. long form. So that's what you, I don't know if you said that. Correct. But there's lots yeah. of options is the point, I guess. Is that what you're making? Yes. And and actually, you know, it is the category, again, you, you'd think that I would have done my homework before I came in, is more crowded than I appreciated. And trying to stand out in that when there's a lot of what I would call um, sexy new startups makes it difficult. You know, I think when you're in banking or insurance and you've got, sort of new startups coming in, you've got the power of being the big players. You've got American-based companies coming over with a sort of sex appeal and a lot of different content that also, let's be clear, they rose during COVID when people had nothing else to do. So that they've also had that advantage of their growth in the market. I do wonder, being controversial, if there wasn't COVID, would you have the same growth of the paid subscription services? It's a really, really crowded market. So, yes, I can't wait for 7 Plus, just so you're clear. It's one thing I will share, that I want it to become Australia's number one local streaming platform. So that is one of the things I am focused on. Okay, we got one thing. We could wind it up now. Fantastic. Thank you, Mel <laughs> Hopkins. But just listen, on the 7 Plus, knowing what you know now about 7 Plus now that you've been on the inside... What should other marketers know about 7 Plus that you know now? So what's the trigger that goes, actually, it should be higher on their radar than it is? So other than giving a, a plug to to go spend some nice advertising dollars there. It's the only plug you're allowed for this, this Okay, this that's, my, that's my last plug. I actually would encourage them to have a good look because the quality of content that sits on 7 Plus, actually the sport that sits on 7 Plus We've got the end-to-end digital rights for cricket. For AFL, we'll have the end-to-end digital rights. Like, you know, so this is, you're not paying a subscription from 2025. We've got AFL digital rights. Go and have a look at it because at the moment, advertising doesn't work on Netflix. I know they're working hard on it, who has got really good superior content. Your Disney Pluses and your Paramounts that are sort of trying to build their way out there still don't have what I would call a sustainable model on ad serving. You can get as good as, if not better, content on 7 Plus and reach customers. What a well-crafted response without any setup on that one. That was a question without notice. So well done, Mel Hopkins. Maybe, maybe I should get a job in sales. Yeah, That's it's sounding like, for. well, it actually gets me to the next question. Thanks for the segue, which is you talk about, we talked about earlier uh, about you wanting to drive commercial outcomes beyond driving audiences and you want to impact uh, Seven's balance sheet. So what do you mean as a marketer about really wanting to stretch and, uh, and have a commercial impact that is something uh, different to what we see now? Yeah, it's, it's, I find this question fascinating. Mm, I do too. So because you're getting past, past audiences, you want to get to, so how are you going to do that? Well, but it's not even just getting past audiences. I'm going to be a bit more bullish. I don't think a, that there is a single marketeer or CMO in the land or actually globally that should be turning up for work unless they are actually contributing to the bottom line and they know what they're doing is contributing to the bottom line. You do not deserve to, you don't deserve to do the job. 
And I am hungry about understanding that impact. You know, how do the viewers and growing viewership and growing advertising revenue and growing stickiness, how does that drive profitable EBIT for seven? So I'll go back to, I talked about audiences. When I came in, I shared with the Exco, I have two jobs, to grow quality, sticky audiences and to drive EBIT to the bottom line. Now at Optus, you will know that there's lots of great examples that I was able to demonstrate where we did that from marketing, from you know, being able to contribute that marketing drove 20% worth of sales or that for every media dollar that we spent, we're able to drive $1.20 right down to profitability. And I plan to do the same here. But I'm not here to do a vanity job to make myself feel good. If the business is not growing EBIT, I am failing in my job. Will the the way you do that at seven, the methodologies, the attribution, however the stack looks for you to, to do that, will it be different at seven and how you do it versus what you did at Optus? Or can you, is it a, are there parallels? I had hoped it was just a lift and shift and it's way Damn more it. complicated. <laughs> it's way more complicated. And I'd sort of thought this was a simple industry and business, but um, there is a lot of complexities particularly when you think the way even people just consume. Are they consuming through aerials? Are they consuming through, you know, you you can watch Seven through Foxtel. Are you consuming through the internet or through an app or through a smart TV? And, you know, that's looking at the measurement and how you reach them gets a lot more difficult. Mm. But I believe there are some basic principles, you know, right right down to old-fashioned things like what's the CPA? Right. And measuring, actually, you know, a lot of what I do in my team is promos. That is what other brands would pay premium airtime. So actually, for the promos that we get on our own channel, what is the return on that? How is that driving audiences? What is the reach and frequency? Are we having wastage on certain things? I look forward to um, having another conversation on how, how you unpack that. You did mention earlier, actually, that, you know, content companies and media companies don't always do as well as their advertiser clients, really, in, in marketing themselves, certainly on the on the platforms that you are now in and with. Why is that, Mel? What happens there? You know, it's a really good question. I think it, I think content, I'm wondering if sort of in the 2000s, if content took over with the rise of some of the big American programs like Sex and the City or, or you know, for Seven, obviously, a, a desperate housewives, that there wasn't the need to feel that you had, the brand had to stand for anything. Because certainly for me growing up, you know, Channel 7, you know, and 9 did brand campaigns and stood for something and stood out. I think then it just became really content driven and and led and it sort of lost its way a bit. I really admire the brilliant work that Zaid is doing over at 4 in the UK. Channel 4, right. Where absolutely that brand stands for something. I think there's some really strong work coming out of ITV as well in the UK. And actually, to be honest, the BBC, the UK is interesting. Mm. Different market, though, because they're much more loyal to their more traditional, what you consider traditional platforms than in Australia, where we're probably much similar to the US in how we, you know, have peripherated in, in there. I find it remarkable. It's one of the things I said to James when I started, that you've got a killer sales team who in part have been instrumental in building the Optus brand and and demonstrating how that brand can grow. But I don't think that 
Seven as a brand um, has been marketed or stood for something in the same way that your sales team does so brilliantly for other businesses. Yeah, and look, it's fascinating too. It's a B2B context, but creative agencies and media agencies don't advertise either, but they do a lot of advertising as their business. It's an interesting one. Hey, well, well yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's another, there's another conversation. There's another podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the things that you also said when we, we chatted earlier is that there was another light bulb moment for you, which is, ah, I've never been in a marketing role, this is you speaking, where the product is free. Uh, mm-hmm. You've always been in something where people have to pay. So w- the challenge for you getting your head around that is what? It's a completely different type of of marketing. And I guess for me, it's not so much that I've worked in places where people have paid, the value exchange is different. So, you know, I spent four years working on the British Army, driving recruitment there. But there was a different type of value exchange that that even went into that space. It's kind of odd because what has happened in the world and with consumerism is that when people pay for something, they want to feel like they're getting value for money. So your advertising or your messaging or your marketing is demonstrating how you're giving them that value all the time. When you're not having to pay for something, I think psychologically, you think a little differently. So I I could, with our team, come out and develop a campaign that I think is right and I could share all the value you get with Seven. But a lot of the data is demonstrating at the moment that people are just watching subscriptions, even if they think some of the content is substandard because they've paid for it. I I had a, a, a really great advisor that I'm working with at the moment say to me, are you working in a category, Mel, that is akin to Medicare and Medibank private? Because Medicare is highly respected, very respected. You know, news, sport, a bit of content, if I'm going to use that as a, as a great example. And people would scream and cry if it went away. But because you're paying a premium for health insurance, you feel you've got to flog it. And actually, some of the time, what you're trying to flog on health insurance and paying to get a small gap you'd get better service on Medicare. Right. So it was just really, really interesting sort of, um, so I'm a little scared. And, you know, it was probably about two weeks ago I was in a session. I was like, holy hell, I've never sold anything that was free before and I'm actually now in, I'm not selling a brand. I am, I may, may end up doing that. I am selling millions of different products. And what's the difference of where this product sits versus it's sitting on another platform? Right. So it is, it's super complex. Well, I'm glad it's your job. I'm just happy to ask the questions. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, the, the, so can we expect then, and I'm going to get to the funnel before we run out of time, but I'm assuming then what, what you're brewing and, and developing at the moment, we will see some sort of new positioning for Seven in market. Will we see uh, more targeted communications, different media channels to promote shows? It's part of this transformation program. You're going to do things differently. Is it that or is that too obvious when I throw those things out? It is actually deeper and more meaningful than, than a journo trying to make um, some shit up. No. Um, I think you've stated what I would call the basic principles of marketing and absolutely we'll be doing that. But uh, we are going to, on top of that, be doing things much deeper and, and more exciting Seven used to be and still is to a large portion of the population part of the fabric of Australia. I'm really passionate about pushing that out further so that it has a role in the culture. 
and everyone knowing that seven is actually about driving culture. And, you know, I, I use this at Optus a lot. One of the best fabric brands in the world, I think, is freaking Bunnings. Right. They don't necessarily do the most creative advertising, but that is part of people's life and it drives actually part of the culture right down to things like sausage sizzles. So um, I'm looking forward to Seven sitting back up where Optus used to as one of the strongest brands in Australia and being the first network to do so. Customer experience uh, and MarTech and all those things that are sort of below the line in the old school of, of working. Marketers have had have got more of a remit and, and have got that customer experience role. Is there an opportunity there for Seven to build in and around? Uh, you, you've got audiences, but is there a customer, is there a different customer experience that Seven should, will engage with, um, with your audiences as, you know, in 12 months' time? Is there a play there? So we're already well advanced there. And a lot of that is in 7 plus, And actually a lot of that is also in a lot of the development that we're doing around how we're producing and developing content. I think the opportunity is, is that a lot of the content players, if you go onto any of the UXs from the ecosystem, now all look the same. And actually, how do you start driving a point of difference there? And I'm super excited to be involved in the team in developing and manufacturing that. You know, CBA was hailed in this market when it came out with its app being so transformational. And bizarrely, people would say they wouldn't leave CBA even if the mortgage was higher because they like the app. There is absolutely that play and that is absolutely the ambition of Seven to, to play in the, in the same space and be quite transformational. So when do we first see a little bit of this transformation coming to market from Mel Hopkins? What will that look like and when? Okay, okay. so- You're not going to tell me what it's going to look like. That's Well, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. I'm going to be very honest with you. I have been in the seat eight weeks. Yes, um, I forget that. I have been getting my head around a new industry. I've been building relationships with key partners I have been listening and learning a lot and actually in eight weeks we've already had a, a couple of wins of pushing forward around some of our ambition. I'm impatient. So I look forward to having this conversation again in 12 months where you pat me on the back, Paul, at all of the fantastic transformational stuff that we've managed to do. So yeah, watch this space for the next 12 months. Final question, Mel, is, and it's, and I reckon um, it's going to get really interesting. I don't know how we're going to cut this off, is the funnel, right? So you actually said in, in an earlier conversation around uh, this podcast is the funnel is dead. And I'm really, really interested as to why you say that and what replaces it if the funnel is dead. And please inform me and the rest of us, because it's a big thing, right? Funnels, marketing funnel is something that's been around for a while. Yeah, so uh, look, I'm being dramatic and you can pick up that I, you know, at times can be. It's transformed and it's now secular. I think customers can come in at any level because of the way media has fragmented. So I can be served up something that you'd consider to be bottom of the funnel for, say, example, NRMA insurance. And that actually may be my prompt to find out more or for it to be front of mind. I may not go purchase at the same time. Or conversely, I may have just purchased my NRMA insurance and then I see the brand ad for the first time. 
just because of my media habits and it reinforces for me why I have chosen NRMA and why I want to stick there. I think it is, you know, as much as, you know, I will use that there is brand building preference and what I call sales action down the end, but to think that customers just follow that loop I think is naive and jammed in the 80s when there was only sort of three media platforms in print or four, print, radio, television and out of home where it was much easier to do that. There are thousands of media platforms and moments now. So people have to be a lot more sophisticated around around their marketing and where people come in and what that expectation is. And I get really angry and frustrated, and I use the word angry, I'm going up to can in can, sorry, second plug, where I'm sort of talking on a panel there around performance marketing because there was this debate about brand building and performance marketing. And I went, well, isn't brand building about driving performance? Yes. Where's where's the segregation? So I take your point on it not being so linear or it not being so linear. You can pl- It's less planable um, in terms of that process. But you still have this notion, right, that at the top of the funnel you still need awareness and you need to build consideration. At what point that comes in, take your point, but you still need awareness and consideration to get to uh, some sort of action or conversion. So are you saying that any sort of uh, marketing activity can do a double duty act, if you like, of brand and performance? Yes, that's a great question. No, because then you end up just getting a whole lot of vomit on the page and it's inefficient and effective. I think what I'm saying, if you go into a quadrant or a circle, that there is a circle very much, which is when people are, you know, awareness, maybe consideration, then they don't have active intent to purchase at that period, right? I then think that there is um, what you'd call preference and driving purchase intent where they're semi-active. There absolutely is a circle where people are active and then down the bottom there's the final loop where I've purchased but actually you want to remind them that they've done a good job and that they've purchased there. But what it is not is this really sort of clear someone comes in through the brand and then they come in through preference and then they end up purchasing. And I will call out again, I've used this before, one of the best examples of brands that I think have demonstrated that the funnel is dead and that is Mecca Cosmetica. Why? Because I think that what has happened with Mecca Cosmetica is often, you know, that relationship starts with I've run out of mascara, right? So I've started bottom of the funnel a lot of the time and then I've gone in and how they've served me up and how I've received information has made me the hugest brand advocate. Yeah, because it's the customer experience is doing the heavy lifting on that, right? It's actually the- Correct. They hardly even did any advertising for the first, I don't know, 10 years of their their work. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So the customer experience is building the brand in that front, in that example. I'm going to wind this up with this final one, which is your top four priorities for the rest of the year, Mel. Bigger picture, really, is like your, your big four agenda items would be what? Getting your head around the business? Yeah, um, I will answer that question very honestly and fairly around what my top four priorities are. Yay. The first priority for me is to demonstrate to the Exco and the board that they have bought in an experienced marketeer that is demonstrating real-time commercial impact to the bottom line. And, and that is quite ambitious for me to do that, but I want them to sit there and see that I have created that change and my team have created that change. That's, that's number one. 
Number two, I am really passionate about stopping the discussion around overnight metro ratings because that is not how Australia, I think, view. I don't think it's a fair assessment of what people view and you don't judge Netflix like that. So let's look at total Australians and total households and, and what they look like, look at. And I actually think if we get the narrative right on that, we'll start to turn the tide that television as you know it actually has evolved and is changing and can reach people that are super, super engaged. The, the third thing is you will see some new stuff from Seven, whether that is what our brand stands for, whether that is how we take our shows to to market. So you'll, you'll absolutely see that. And, and that's a, that's a big priority. And then the final one for me is I want media to be seen as one of the best destinations for the best marketers in Australia to come and want to come. And I really want to build that brand out. And just because you said some interesting things there, what are the skills, capabilities in your team that you need to build out? Is it there? Or do you need to add to what, what's in the team now to get to where you want to go? So I am currently doing an audit, as you'd expect any good CMO to do. There is some absolutely amazing talent in the team. I'm excited about that. There's a lot of youth in the team that are really, really coachable. I think the big job to do for those that maybe haven't worked in industries outside of media is really sort of sharpen up what I would call strategic marketing and what I would call advanced digital marketing. Mel. I know I've said the last question about five times. This is the last one. What would be a key observation about Optus's cyber hack uh, from a marketer's perspective? Um, what's the big lesson we'll take out from that? Well, well, look, to be honest, that's probably a completely different podcast because I've never learned so much in my entire career as I have working through that. Right. But here for me is the one lesson um, actually for, for marketeers the importance of having a strong brand before you go into a crisis. So the thing I was most proud of leaving Optus and super proud of having relationships with the team still there is how quickly the brand bounced back. You know, some people said it was going to take 12 to 18 months. It actually went back to pre-levels of what it was before the cyber within four months, which is remarkable. I think the other thing around being honest with your customers is absolutely critical and owning owning what happened and how they felt. And some other brands since the attack have probably put their head in the sand around that. I think that's important to have that, to have that integrity. And then, you know, finally, you realize your critical role in an organization when something like that happens. You know, I was the third person our national head of cybersecurity called. I didn't sleep. For five weeks, I was on the back end of a whole lot of criticism, some of it fair, some of it deeply unfair, some of it personal. And I saw a brand that my team and I built get shattered overnight. And it's quite heartbreaking, you know, for that to happen. But thank God I was surrounded by an amazing team and and had great leadership to to work through it. So um I never thought that I would I would live through anything like that, but I am better for it, and I know a lot more about cyber than I ever did. Yes, well, that, hence why we need to have another conversation on the mics about that because I think we all could learn from that one. 
Well, I can't wait to find out in six months or eight months, not 12 months, what that looks like. Mel Hopkins, <laughs> hey, uh, we'll let you get back to the job at hand, but great conversation. Thanks for joining and let's watch some shows, shall we? Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.